Welcome to Talk Plus Water, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the world of water with those making waves. My name is Todd Bottler, and I'm your host for Talk Plus Water. I'm also the editor-in-chief of Texas Plus Water and the Texas Water Journal. You can sign up for Texas Plus Water by visiting texasplusswater.org. And you can sign up for the Texas Water Journal at texaswaterjournal.org. Both publications are free. This is podcast number 19. My guest today is Dr. Larry Stevens, the director of the Springs Stewardship Institute. Larry, welcome, and thank you for being part of Topless Water. Thanks, Todd, for the opportunity to be here today. So let's start out with your background in water. How did you first become involved with water issues? I come from a generation uh, from uh, I come from northern New Hampshire originally. Uh, my family's got 13 generations up there. At the age of four, I fell into my first spring. And it's been a, a love affair with water and springs ever since, although I, that was a kind of a cold March morning as we were making maple syrup up there in the North Woods. <laughs> uh, I've had a long term fascination with water, its relationship to life. Um, uh, both flowing water and, and standing water worked on many issues related to river regulation, reservoir ecology, and gradually began to focus on springs uh, because they have so many dimensions that that matter to to society, to uh, the science of ecology, and to evolution. So now you have gone from the northeast and here in the southwest uh, down in Arizona. So. Uh, tell me about the Spring Stewardship Institute. I, I met you just about, I guess, a month ago at uh, the Nevada Water Resource Association where we were both speaking. And I was, I have to tell you, I was shocked that I, I did not know about your organization because I have been so interested in Springs, you know, going back to my time uh, working on Comal uh, uh, and San Marcos Springs at the Edwards Aquifer, uh, that when I when I saw your presentation, I was like, oh, I want to I want to know all about this organization. Well, we started uh, Springs Stewardship Institute here at the Museum of Northern Arizona in 2012 in response to a number of uh, our interests in in, uh, in the ecology of springs and to uh, to try to uh, bring more attention to the uh, to the conservation needs of springs globally. So this is a global initiative from the nonprofit Museum of Northern Arizona's Spring Stewardship Institute, and we use this as a very uh, very positive science and and neutral otherwise uh, institution. So we're about science, and we're about encouragement uh, uh, for. Uh, balancing uh, the ecological values of springs along with their use. There's no uh, humans have been using springs forever uh, for throughout our, our entire history, um, and there's no restriction on. Uh, no, there, we have no um, expectation that, that humans won't use springs, but we we see a big need for being able to balance the ecology of springs with the uses, and so. Uh, beginning in 2012, we began to do workshops and bring uh, bring bring trainings to to uh, uh, individuals and organizations interested in that. And uh, since that since that time, our uh, website and our our Springs Online database have uh, have really grown in in use. We now have more than a thousand users on Springs Online, which is the database component of our our program. And uh, we are looking at uh, a wide array of springs, mostly focused in North America so far, but um, but ours is a global initiative, and we we hope to be able to move uh, out into the rest of the world with this as time goes on. So you mentioned uh, some of the outreach that you're doing. Do you have any other programs there at the Institute regarding springs? Yeah, so we realize that we have to take a multi kind of level approach to this topic because springs are so uh, underrecognized. So a lot of the work we do is approaching organizations that manage springs. These are federal agencies, Native American tribes, some states, um, uh, uh, organizations that manage a lot of springs, and we provide them with uh, inventory and ecological assessment tools. We 
do that kind of work for them. Great science uh, to be had there because uh, because oftentimes we're kind of the first scientists on the scene with many of these sites that haven't they just haven't been visited before. Great adventure in, in doing the uh, the field inventory work. But we our, our real purpose is to provide advisement to the to the to the stewards of these springs, whether they be agencies, tribes, or or even private individuals. And in that light, we do workshops and trainings. Uh, we've done uh, in the last couple years. We've done trainings throughout uh, Western North America, uh, in the United States, in Mexico, in Canada. And um, right now we're involved with some programs that are involving citizen scientists and adventure scientists and going out and, and doing recon and evaluation of springs. So we do trainings to provide information back to the stewards and, uh, and help improve then the uh, management of the springs. So I want to I follow up on something you just uh, mentioned at the beginning of your answer about springs being under-recognized. I mean, that's something that, that I've really been curious about because I, I've been thinking about that for a while. Um, you know, we, are you probably seeing uh, uh, Gunnar Bloom's uh, Springs of Texas book? And I read that, you know, 25 years ago, I guess now. And, you know, started thinking about, you know, I'm involved in water management here in Texas and, and a lot of the discussions about ecological impacts, but, you know, we're, we're talking about rivers and bays and estuaries and wetlands, but, you know, it seems like we rarely talk about springs. And so, um, you know, it seems like that's, that is kind of a significant issue with springs that they're, they're somewhat overlooked in the water conversation. Well, I would say more than somewhat overlooked. They're they're uh, really dramatically overlooked. I'm googling Todd right now on the word spring, and the first thing that comes up is a advertisement for a, uh, some kind of information management system. Spring makes Java reactive. Oh, that's funny. I did that, and, and I got metal springs. Uh huh. Right. Yeah. The se- the second is uh, auto parts. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so the, the real problem is the in English is homography. I think one of one of the key uh-huh. problems is that there are so many meanings for the word spring. They're all related meanings, but um, but they don't get you to the water uh, feature. And so it's not until you get you know maybe sometimes on the second page of of uh, Google that you even see water mentioned in relation to springs. The point is that um, English might not be a very good language for talking about springs because we have so much confusion in the language about it. If you go to Spanish where, uh, um, uh, if you go to Spanish or French where where there's a single word for spring, then that makes a lot more sense. Manantial in Spanish, source in in French. So um, we have a limitation on on our language about approaching uh, the topic of springs. And that's not all, uh, but that, that problem kind of works its way through the entire process of public attention to them, to scientific attention to them, to funding uh, dedicated to them, uh, and possibly even to our water law policy. It's just that um, they, they, they're just not recognized in, in the English uh, language very well. Um, Everywhere else in the world, springs are regarded as, you know, places where miracles happen, places where they're that are just remarkably uh, important for human uh, well-being and and uh, and biodiversity. Um, so this issue of bringing springs into the public attention is, is kind of a big deal in our culture. There are many other uh, kind of implications of it. Most of the of the work on wetlands, on water resources, on the effects of climate change, on um, on these uh, critical resources, do not even mention springs. Right. Um, I can't tell you the number of books I've read through searching even for the word spring to be mentioned anywhere in them. The word, the the concept is just not there. People don't recognize it, and um, part of it, part of that goes into our water policy, at least in the Western U.S., uh, in Texas as well, I think uh, you've got appropriative water rights. Um, Groundwater, surface water are two very different um, legal topics. And springs are right at the intersection between the two. Springs kind of legally fall between the cracks of our legal system. Right. So so that's a that's a that's a 
very important issue because of the, the, uh, the high conservation value, the high economic and, and social societal value of springs. Um, we don't have a mechanism to recognize them in our language. Right, right. And just going back to, you know, talking about uh, the law and springs in Texas, when I first uh, became involved in uh, the Edwards Oxford issues, you know, I would talk to people about uh, the legal journey that a drop of water goes on. And if you can imagine, you know, a drop of water falls on the ground in uh, Texas in the contributing zone at the Edwards Aquifer, then, then enters into a stream course where it's now publicly owed water. And the state of Texas can give you a right to divert and use it. And then when that drop of water flows over the Edwards Aquifer recharge zone and entered into the aquifer, you know, it was subject to the rule of capture. So it was private property uh, and uh, was not owned by the state. But when it uh, eventually came out of Kumal or San Marcos or one of the other springs, as it saw the light coming out of the spring, it was magically transformed back into uh, publicly owned surface water again, for which the state may have issued permits uh, based on downstream at that point, based on the flow of those springs, which were not, you know, protected or guaranteed uh, because they weren't regulated and were subject to the rule of capture, which means the ball, the biggest pump, and, you know, you can keep on pumping when you drive your neighbor's well or a local spring. So, um, well, let's, let's actually move to a little bit about springs themselves physically. Um, you know, I was just thinking about this, you know, we have springs actually underwater, even under the sea. Uh, and so there, there actually, you know, are there a, a number of different types of springs that you, uh, you find all over the world? And do we have any kind of a, uh, a sense of how many springs there might be globally? And uh, what, do you, what do you think? Great questions. Our, our, the limitations of our knowledge uh, have to do with mapping and the geography of springs, which um, here in the U.S., if you look on a U.S. geological map, 1 to 24,000 scale, uh, you can see little squiggles. Unfortunately, those squiggles are not searchable yet <clears throat> because the, the direction of the squiggle uh, shows you wh where the water is flowing. And that's a mapping constraint that it doesn't allow us to actually tally the springs of the United States very easily. Um, Springs are, as you say, uh, abundant all over the world, even on the floor of the ocean. Um, springs recycle all the water on Earth every 8 to 10 million years through deep sea vent uh, and tectonic uh, uh, groundwater flow into the crust. And then coming back out in these very hot, super pressurized springs on the seafloor. Uh, with a black smokers or... Is that what those are called? Yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, several, several different morphologies of springs. I'm not sure how good the classification of springs on the floor of the ocean is. That seems to be mostly the purview of the of Woods Hole uh, uh, Biological Station and trying to interact with them to, to find out more about how they classify their deep sea springs. But there are also cold water seeps and springs on the floor of the ocean, which have gotten very little attention, but also have a very unique fauna and, uh, and uh, uh, geochemistry. So springs are found throughout the world. Um, most springs are small. Uh, the, the big, beautiful springs like Kumal and uh, Devil's River, those uh, systems are spectacular. They get a lot of attention, but most springs are quite tiny, uh, 500 square meters or so on average. Uh, doing a calculation based on what we have in North America, data we have in North America so far, uh, and extrapolating that to, to, the, to the rest of the world, whether that's a fair extrapolation or not, there, there appear to be at least two and a half million springs on Earth. Um, uh, people have estimated more than 20-fold more than that, but um, not actually based on calculations of spring area. And even today, most people are not um, me measuring the size of the springs, the, the, the spring-affected habitat. Groundwater is coming out affecting a patch of land. How big is that patch of land? That's a, uh, those calculations are often not being done. So uh, we're trying to um, gather data on that to be able to make this, uh, some of these estimations. But two and a half, three million springs um, on Earth at least, and perhaps an order of magnitude more um, as, uh, as we learn more, we'll, we'll be able to find, uh, refine that estimate. 
you also ask about the class. You also ask about the classification of springs. Yes. Uh, Abe Springer and I in 2009, and then in a paper that's just coming out in Ecological Applications now, recognized 13 major types of springs of terrestrial springs, meaning springs that are coming out on continental surfaces. Many of them do come out underwater, um, uh, with, uh, in under freshwater rivers and lakes and whatnot. But nonetheless, about 13 different types of springs emerge on uh, on the Earth's continents, and we've tested this in uh, uh, Australia, in uh, Europe, in North Africa, as well as North America, uh, so and in South America. So, but we have a pretty good sense that we've got most of those types of springs captured in this research. Um, there are uh, about a half, another half dozen subtypes of springs because, say, a marshy spring can come out on the on the on the on the banks of a river and be subject to flooding disturbance, and that changes the entire character of the of the spring as an ecosystem. So these thirteen major types are are ecosystem types. Um, in looking at that uh, classification system, uh, we've come to the conclusion that springs really should be regarded as a biome of, of earth. Uh, these, uh, spring systems are so distinctive. They're all linked by the emergence of groundwater and the, the linkage between, uh, the, the underworld, if you will, and the atmosphere. Uh, those are key kind of connection, connecting features of springs that, that, um, allow us to identify springs as really being a, uh, an earth biome. So, uh, when I first became involved with springs, of course, I thought, well, you know, it's one opening. But, you know, there, for most, I guess, large frame systems, you know, there are multiple openings. There's just a lot of fractures in the rock in various places. And, and so, it, it's, I guess it's very different than I, I, I first uh, was thinking about their, you know, kind of morphology. Yeah. Um Many springs come out in uh, several sources, uh, sometimes very in very close uh, connect. Uh, springs come out in many uh, many springs come out in multiple sources. Some of those sources are directly connected, so we call it, we, we're comfortable calling that a springs ecosystem. Notice I'm using the word uh, springs as a plural there because it's very unusual to find a single vent. Um, in other landscapes, there are multiple springs that are not necessarily directly connected to each other. Happy to call each of those a, uh, a springs ecosystem in its own right, but they are in provinces or in you know fairly close uh, close proximity. I was talking with an Australian spring ecologist yesterday, and he talked about Elizabeth Spring in Queensland, which has more than 700 springs uh, that are pretty closely related. So they haven't bothered to try to name any of those. They just give them numbers. Um, and hopefully their their GPS uh, tracking system is is um, accurate enough to be able to revisit those numbered uh, sources. It's a very common misconception that spring sources move. It's not the norm that they, they do because where the springs are coming out is usually geologically controlled. Faults and fractures are allowing the water to come to the surface, and uh, and the tilt on the aquifer allows the water to be uh, coming out through gravity or sometimes under pressure if it's a confined aquifer. Nonetheless, the sources don't generally move very much. There are some situations in which seasonal increases in groundwater table in the groundwater level table. Uh, there are situations in which the groundwater table uh, can rise and the spring source can move up slope slightly, but those are generally um, uh, generally kind of rare. Mostly, it's geologic control of the sources. So, what what is it about Nevada? I, when you gave your presentation, it seemed like there's really a lot of springs in Nevada for some reason. We've been really delighted to be able to work in the state of Nevada because because it has such a fabulous array of landforms. There are whatever a thousand mountain ranges in that basin and range province, uh, places where the crust of the earth has been uh, actually kind of slightly pulled apart and uh, and transformed into uh, horse and grab and mountain ranges. And when you do that to the to the crust of the earth, aquifers are layers of rock that are fractured and able to hold water in those fractures. Um, if you tilt those uh, bodies of rock, the, uh, the aquifers, uh, and allow the water, uh, the water will then pass by gravity and to a place where the aquifer is exposed to the to the to the earth's surface. That's where springs come out. So, 
that we've we've estimated now 27,000 springs in Nevada. That's the highest concentration of springs in any state so far. And that's interesting because Nevada is also the driest state. So um, that contrast of uh, aridity plus a great number of springs means springs are, are super important as water sources there. Also quite interesting is that there's, because the springs come out uh, in these desert landscapes, uh, they create a spring brook that flows for a, a, some distance, 10 meters, 100 meters, sometimes a kilometer, and then sinks back into the earth. So those waters are never never uh, recorded in stream flow gauges, or very rarely are they recorded. Uh, that makes the, the, the amount of water coming out uh, quite, I think, quite uh, provocative. I think we estimated a quarter of a million acre feet of water based on the data we have for Nevada so far, uh, a quarter million acre feet of water a year coming out in those uh, in the state that is probably not recorded on any of their stream flow gauges. And so, you know, you mentioned uh, a little about how, you know, you've got so many different types of springs. I, you know, I imagine that there, I know that they are, biological diversity hotspots. If you look at the Evers Aquifer and the springs associated with that aquifer, uh, you know, most of those large spring systems have, you know, endemic species. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of species that are listed as endangered or threatened that are in those uh, various springs. Um, And so I imagine that they really are very, very important in terms of biological diversity. Yeah, springs are uh, biological hotspots in in ways that we don't really think about uh, uh, because many of the creatures that uh, that we encounter at springs aren't very well known, aren't recognized. Some some of them haven't even been described to science. We did a project uh, three years ago where we looked at all the springs from Death Valley to uh, uh, South Central Texas and uh, tallied the number of springs that had been reported in that landscape, and then uh, compiled information on the springs-dependent species uh, that live in that landscape. The Europeans call those crinobionts. That's a, that's a very impoetic word, so we prefer springs-dependent species as a, as a way to describe these creatures. Uh, for the um, 50,000 springs we had reported in that landscape, a huge landscape, across the desert southwest, we came up with at least 1,200 species of, of uh, plants, invertebrates, and vertebrates, macro species. Uh, we haven't looked at the, at the uh, my, uh, microbial biology of these systems very much yet, um, but 1,200 species were springs-dependent in that landscape. In some cases, the springs are hosting an entirely different flora and fauna than exists in the surrounding landscape in many in many of those uh, uh, states and, and uh, settings. So uh, the biodiversity of springs can be extremely high, uh, and the kinds of species that live at springs are often very precisely adapted to the to the water chemistry, to the temperature, to the constancy of the environment, um, and uh, in many cases, we find endemic species that are found at just one or two or three springs, for example. In all across the desert southwest, we have spring snails, which are little tiny, uh, uh, very elegant little snails that are uh, about 200 species in North America. Uh, most of them are restricted to just a few springs. And so we have this very high level of endemism within this one family of snails that we've happened to look at. Um, Part of the story there is that the researcher uh, working on these things was willing to spend his entire life dissecting the reproductive tracts of these little tiny snails and then doing the genetics on them and being able to tie those two parts of the story together. Morphology and genetics vary enough to, for him to describe. Uh, he, he described more than 100 species in his, uh, in his career of these spring snails. So... Um, uh, that's one example, but we haven't looked at several other families of snails and other mollusks that live in these sites. Uh, finger clams, physid snails, the doors are wide open on how many species we have with there. It's probably hundreds more species of, of, uh, of mollusks that occur in springs there that we haven't taxonomically described yet. So biodiversity hotspot, yes. Uh, unknowns and mysteries remaining off the charts. Uh, springs are just fabulously um, ecologically diverse in these desert settings. At higher elevations where the springs are shaded, oftentimes the productivity is lower, not so many unique species, 
But again, we haven't really looked at, uh, at, uh, at, at much of the actual genetics on things like stoneflies uh, and, and uh, mayflies that are living in these cold water, often shaded sites. So we don't really know what the biodiversity is going on at those sites either. Um, so uh, we call this intrinsic uh, or point source biodiversity that we have going on in a lot of our springs here in the Southwest. Um, and the focus has been on the aquatic species, but there are also wetland and there are riparian species living in these settings that we have not really looked at very much. Beetles, uh, quite a large number of ground beetles live around springs. They haven't been looked at, spiders, et cetera. Lots and lots more to learn there. So it's really a wide open field and uh, there's a huge open invitation to anybody interested in biology to and, and uh, taxonomy to get inter involved in, in these relationships. That sounds like a call to graduate students. It is absolutely a call. <laughs> the many dimensions of ecological intrigue and evolutionary intrigue to be to be uh, searched for in springs is just off the charts. It's just a, a fabulous environment to be able to to uh, to think about a career in that field. Um, I wanted to say that, so we have all this intrinsic bio, biodiversity at springs, but springs are also playing an enormous role in the landscapes in which they exist. In many cases, springs are very isolated. Maybe there's no other water around for 10 kilometers. And that, uh, in a, uh, 10, there may be no other water in a 10 kilometer radius around the springs. Um, that means that every bird in the landscape pretty much has to come to that spring to water every day doves, and, you know, and you name it, uh, quail and whatnot. They're all coming in to, uh, to, for that water source, and therefore the ecological interactivity with the surrounding landscape can be incredibly important. The loss of that spring means those species are actually out of water. They don't have, they don't have a, a source of water in those landscapes. I've had as many as 35 species of birds show up in half an hour at, uh, at one spring. We we're looking at an isolated spring here in northern Arizona. So springs are, are functioning as keystone ecosystems. Lots of interactivity with the, with the surrounding landscape, lots of interchange um, from the surrounding landscape into the spring, from the spring out into the surrounding landscape, uh, from the spring up into the atmosphere, from the spring probably down into the hyperreic zone, the, the zone of, of uh, uh, saturated uh, channel down below the floor of the spring. Many different dimensions of, of interactivity going on there. So again, this makes springs just very, very interesting and intriguing and, and complex landscapes to be able to, to try to figure out as ecosystems. So in addition to being biological diversity hotspots, you know, I, I know that they're also archeological hotspots. Uh, Texas State University, uh, you go to San Marcos Springs, they have an underwater archeology span program uh, you know, trying to piece together uh, occupation of those springs going back. It seems like it's at least 12,000 years they've been used by humans constantly. And so I'm, you know, I'm interested in the, uh, you know, viewpoint of archaeology, you know, what are springs revealing about our past? Very deep question. Uh, there was a very provocative paper in 2014 by two authors, Cuthbert and Ashley, who reconstructed the paleo uh, uh, hydrology of the Olduvai Gorge. This is where our, you know, our uh, oldest uh, um, human ancestors are, are found. And what they found was that the human remains were found at springs, in the vicinity of springs. Their explanation was that during droughts in that period of time, three million, two and a half, three million years ago, humans would retreat to the springs to, uh, because, it was, uh, because of the reliability of the water there. The rest of the landscape might dry, dry up and, and the springs are the only source of water. Well, there's another side to that story. They didn't go into too much, but uh, what we're finding is that springs are also ambush sites for large predators. The large predators come into those sites and wait. They may wait on the periphery. They may wait inside the spring, depending on the vegetation and whatnot, but then they attack prey that are coming for water. And uh, so another kind of side of the human remains left at springs, maybe that's where uh, large predators were attacking our ancestors. Very provocative paper. Uh, but it ties springs very intimately to our own evolution. In more recent time, Pleistocene times, um, 
most of the Pleistocene kill sites with these these earliest uh, uh, um, uh, North American Paleo-Indians uh, were attacking their prey were at springs. I think of uh, Mammoth Hot Springs. We think of uh, a number of sites studied by Vance Haynes, who who um, uh, who looked at uh, mammoth kill sites and camel kill sites all across the across the United States, from from Nevada over into Florida, even. So at a number of places we find, um, you know, Pleistocene megafauna with cut marks on them, showing that humans had actually um, laid in wait at, the, at these springs and, and, and taken them down. So uh, very important in terms of the, the um, uh, our, our human history here in, in North America. In more recent times, uh, the more modern cultures of, of Indians uh, have developed pretty elaborate um, uh, not mythology, it's belief systems about about uh, the origination of, of springs and the divine beings associated with springs. And there's kind of a, an elaborate uh, uh, dialogue about that, uh, about that topic. Again, springs are often viewed um, as sacred sites, as uh, remarkably um, uh, influential places where miracles happen and whatnot in, in many other cultures except our own. Um, so, uh, so there's a, a long-term role of, of, uh, of springs in human culture and, his, and evolutionary history. And uh, one hypothesis that I'm kicking around a bit these days is that uh, initially in hunting-gathering settings, uh, uh, situations, pre-agricultural situations, springs are used as ambush sites. But as uh, the game are killed off, and the uh, and the uh, the need for agriculture arises. Then springs become places where people live. Prior to that, prior to agriculture, people probably didn't live at springs so much because a big predators were coming in, and b you would scare the prey away if you lived there. But in uh, agricultural times, then using the water from the spring to to uh, grow crops would would be a more important kind of function. So there may be a hypothesis to be tested if any of our audience are anthropologically inclined. That might be something really interesting to look at across the world. Well, so from hunting spots to agricultural centers to tourism, uh, you know, springs, especially in West Texas, places like that, you know, used to be uh, sites of tourism. Uh, I don't know if you've heard there's an effort to bring back Comanche Springs in Texas, which was a, a, a spot on the way uh, to El Paso and I guess uh, further west that people used to be able to stop and, and swim in the springs there. And, uh, you know, that's not the only example of that. It seems like uh, there was a, a real interest in going to springs and hot springs, and I guess in particular, at one point in time and, uh, uh, you know, rejuvenating yourself and, and, uh, you know, they were, I guess, a big part of, uh, uh, you know, uh, leisure time in America at one time. Yeah. So, uh, the role of springs in our history is, is, um, is pretty rich when you start to get into it. The old Spanish trail goes from water source to water source. Most of those are springs across the Southwest. Um, uh, many of the train routes and uh, the, the wagon train routes, then eventually the railroads are coming to places that have water to be able to provide water for steam and the steam engines and whatnot. Very rich history there. Uh, and it's a um, uh, very interesting way to tie um, the local landscape into the, into the, into the uh, present day, present day uh, uh, societal state, if you will. Um, uh, the recreational use of springs, long-term interest in that. Um, uh, the uh, hot springs of the United States have been studied, uh, you know, since about 1900 in, in by the U.S. Geological Survey, and uh, and uh, you know every state has a hot springs of Texas of, of whatever whatever state you're in. Lots of attention there. And so, in fact, so much attention that it's kind of hard to find hot springs that are in a natural situation where you can actually study their ecology. So we go to Yellowstone National Park or some of our national parks to look at, at uh, unmanipulated hot springs, but they're quite rare now. Um, the economic value of those has never been assessed. Uh, it's, it's probably enormous. One place where we do have some insight into the economic value of springs, because that's a lot of what uh, our society focuses on, is Florida. And there have been some studies there 
Bon and Bell in 2002 looked at looked at four of the large pool forming springs, finding that the, those springs brought in uh, two million visitors per year and added 60 million dollars in uh, revenue to the local economies. So uh, four springs can bring in that much attention. In other in other settings uh, or other in another mode, springs are often used for bottling water and. If you go out and look at the grocery store, at the number of, of uh, bottled water products you find there, um, many of them are labeled as springs water. And so what often the companies do is go up near a spring, sink a, sink a well in, pull the water out, bottle it, and then sell that to you at kind of a very up, up, uh, uh, steep, steep cost. Well, that industry is uh, has grown to the point where Americans are drinking at least – 50 million bottles of water per day, much of it labeled as springs water, an industry of you know, well in excess of 12, uh, 12 to 15 billion dollars a year just in the U.S. And this is going on worldwide. It's got to the point where uh, oftentimes it's hard. Uh, I think the younger generation may not recognize where their water is coming from. Oh, it comes from bottles. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah. It's un- unfortunate, but, uh, um, you know, the economic value of, of uh, Springs Water is, is, uh, has always been recognized, but it is just off the charts in terms of, in terms of uh, uh, local eco- uh, economies and now uh, international economy. Well, you, you know, you've seen a lot of uh, uh, controversy over, you know, bottling companies uh, setting up in different aquifers and, you know, people, you know, get very concerned about the impact of their aquifers. And, um, you know, I was just thinking about what you're talking about, you know, how many of those uh, uh, bottled water companies, you know, say spring water when, I mean, I'm not sure that they all are spring waters, but that way it's, it's spring, adding springs on there probably adds to the, the value of the product, I think. Yeah, marketing is everything, of course. Right. Uh, and many of the many of the, of the bottled water companies don't say spring on them. They're they're probably taking tap. Who knows what they're doing? Uh, but uh, many are very proud of the fact that they're they're uh, using some version of spring water. Again, it might be a groundwater taken out from a well near a spring, but enough to call it the part of that spring. The damage, of course, the drawdown of groundwater is that uh, we can dewater the spring, and this has happened many, many times. Uh, so the, the, uh, uh, the, that means the loss of the spring and the spring's ecosystem. So uh, what kind of information do you have at the Spring Stewardship Institute? And is it mostly confined to the United States, or are you looking for information all over the world about springs? Um, Tell us a little bit about that. The Spring Stewardship Institute has two main uh, portals. One is our website, springstewardshipinstitute.org, and that provides background information, uh, inventory and assessment protocols, uh, information about some of the projects we've, uh, we've taken up, and uh, a bibliography on springs uh, that we are uh, expanding to the entire world. So it's a, it's a pretty vast resource for, for information about springs. The other is, a, um, th- is called Springs Online. That's springsdata.org, not springsdata.com, but springsdata.org. And that is a site that stores information on springs. It's freely available. Anybody wanting to uh, archive information about springs are, are welcome to. It's password protected, so your information is secure. Uh, we recommend that uh, um, people use that to be able to initiate discussions with, with landowners. Aquifers don't necessarily have the political boundaries that we apply to the surface, and therefore neighbors in different states, neighboring uh, agencies, private versus uh, uh, agency folks might want to talk to each other about Springs. Springs Online provides the ability to do that. It's a, a brilliantly constructed uh, uh, information management system created by Jerry Ledbetter here at Spring Stewardship Institute. And uh, and um, it's being used now by more than a thousand users across, the, across the North America from Mexico to Canada. Our intent is to expand this to the world uh, we're engaging in a uh, um, uh, NSF proposal to to increase the uh, number of languages that the 
the database is, is, is constructed in so that you can choose your language and therefore be able to uh, load information on Springs for any country in the world. This is a complicated process, of course, um, and uh, it, well, we hope to get to this in the next year or so, year and a half. Well, so uh, our outreach is uh, is to anyone in the world who wants to learn more about Springs. We interact with uh, uh, quite a few researchers in Australia, in uh, in Western Europe, Central Europe, and uh, and the UK. Uh, we're uh, reaching out to anybody who wants to learn more about it. We're particularly looking for collaborators in South America and Africa. Those are uh, continents for which there's not very much information available so far. But um, um, again, we're, we're, our, our, our scope is international, uh, even though we're right now uh, building our program in North America. But, um, uh, but the issues facing the conservation of springs are definitely global in scope. Every continent on, on the planet uh, uh, has, has springs-related issues, probably even Antarctica, although we haven't been down there yet. Um, uh, but certainly in every arid land region, springs are being very heavily overdrawn and and they're being managed in a way that just doesn't take it doesn't recognize the um, the ecological relevance of these to the whole landscape and their their importance to the health of of whole landscapes. So of course I'm familiar with the uh, litigation over the Texas Edwards Aquifer and its springs, uh, but as you mentioned, they are springs are sources of of that kind of uh, environmental slash water conflict all over the world. Any other, uh, you know, current uh, disputes over springs that are rising to the top that you, you might want to mention? Well, certainly the uh, situation at Devil's Hole in Nevada is a is an important one to mention. Devil's Hole is a, a small exposure spring that uh, it, this is a place where the surface of the groundwater is exposed in a, through a geologic crack in the earth and it hosts uh, uh, several endemic species uh, a pupfish devil's hole pupfish an endemic water beetle very tight food web of these endemic species there um, devil's hole is actually owned by death valley national park so it's an inholding of death valley national park in nevada southern nevada um and it's uh, one of the most heavily litigated springs in the in the uh, in in Nevada and certainly the Southwest uh, because the the endangered fish breeds on a, a surface of rock that's um, ten to twenty centimeters below the surface and if the groundwater table drops below that uh, that that uh, slab of rock the fish will not have breeding habitat. And there are very few of these fish, the, uh, fewer than uh, 350 of, uh, fish in this in this one setting. And so a drop in that uh, water table could actually eliminate that endangered species. Very heavily litigated uh, site that uh, protects the groundwater basin in, the, uh, in, in pretty much all of southern Nevada there. So it's a very heavily litigated site and uh, quite an important benchmark for protecting groundwater. Let me just say that there's lots and lots of controversy about how we should be managing groundwater. Um, uh, some are of the opinion that we should just suck it all dry and, and, and then leave this, the next generation with literally no groundwater. That is certainly a, a theme in the, uh, in the, uh, in the uh, Midwest, in the Oglala Aquifer, for example. Pump it dry. This is not very farsighted. Uh, um, if we have you know, we want our children to be able to have uh, access to, to groundwater. And the premise that uh, we can tap out groundwater and it will somehow it will somehow magically get water from someplace else is completely flawed. These are limited resources. Some of the water we're tapping out in these aquifers are, is, are placed seen in age. In some cases, uh, some of the groundwaters on Earth are a million years old. And if you, you know, as in Australia, where they've gone through lots of litigation about springs as well. So, um, uh, they recognize that you can't, you know, we, we need to leave our, uh, water for future generations for the well-being of our society, of our nations, and, uh, and all the life that, uh, that uh, uh, exists there. So uh, protecting groundwater uh, for both our natural heritage and the, and the well-being of society is a, is a major theme. It should be a major, uh, major governmental theme in all arid landscapes at least, if not everywhere on Earth. Well, that leads me 
into my last question for you, that are there local, state, federal, or international programs that you're aware of that are specifically focused on protecting springs? Again, attention to springs is uh, problematic because of uh, because springs are not generally recognized. They fall between the legal cracks of, of groundwater and surface water legislation. Uh, at a local level, our city here in Flagstaff is paying great attention to springs. They've actually done a couple of restoration projects on springs that are critical to the history and well-being of our of our of our town. People, uh, many of the of the cities and and uh, and towns in the southwest are sinking wells because they have not enough surface water to to supply their needs. Um, uh, and the places where groundwater depletion is going on is often a very local kind of uh, phenomenon where we draw a water table down and, and then uh, people in the region have to sink either sink deeper wells or figure out some other source of water. So there are many, many local, uh, local um, uh, problems developing around the, around the world. At the state level here in the United States, uh, several states have really uh, excellent programs for, for monitoring and, and paying attention to springs. The Edwards Aquifer is very very heavily monitored, very great uh, amount of attention going to making sure that you don't run out of water there. In Florida, a state program to look at uh, the more than a thousand springs that are recognized as, um, as recreational and economic hotspots in the landscape there. So Florida has a really good program. Texas is doing uh, quite well. Nevada now has a has a pretty good uh, uh, um, program in terms of inventorying and assessing its springs and springs dependent species. California has made some steps forward, but but those are the kind of prime examples. I don't think there's a there's not a, a reliable map of the springs of Alaska where there are there could easily be a million springs for all we all we know. Um, many big uh, suites of springs are not recognized. The prairie potholes, for example, are exposures of groundwater. That's what a spring is. And there are who knows how many hundreds of thousands of prairie potholes, of which 90% are gone. 90% have been uh, eliminated. And yet the remaining 10% are producing half of the waterfowl in North America. So, again, springs are really important as uh, ecological uh, and biodiversity hotspots. <clears throat> They're also uh, under, you know, major threat from human activities. You know, that's, that's interesting what you just mentioned, you know, because I'm aware of the programs and all the various efforts to conserve prairie pothole wetlands. But I, I never hear as part of that um, anything having to do with uh, conserving groundwater connected to those potholes. Yeah. <clears throat> at, a at national levels. <clears throat> at excuse me <clears throat> among nations uh several nations are doing a good job of protecting springs norway australia uh uh have have uh, major programs to protect their springs but most nations do not united states it's it's just kind of an open issue because it's left to, to to the individual states to to manage their groundwater and our definition of wetlands um, precludes consideration of groundwater. So there's a major hurdle in the United States because we don't formally, legally recognize the connection between groundwater and surface water. And therefore, uh, we don't protect springs on a national scale. Um, many springs are protected as state parks uh, throughout Texas and all, all across the nation. <clears throat> um, some, so some countries are doing a, a really remarkable job of, of understanding and recognizing the, the importance of those springs. The European Union recognizes one kind of spring, travertine-forming springs, as worthy of protection. So those get, uh, those get some attention. Um, but otherwise, springs are, uh, are not you know, universally recognized by the European Union. Lots more of attention uh, could be paid uh, there. There, just as here in North America, springs are playing very important roles in, in biodiversity. Well, I would encourage people to, you know, if they're interested in seeing uh, what a plan to conserve springs and, uh, you know, conserve an aquifer looks like, to take a look at the Edwards Aquifer uh, Habitat Conservation Plan, which was developed by a stakeholder process that, that took over seven years. Um, and so that that give you some idea of some of the things that can be done. 
So, Larry, um, once again, uh, thank you for uh, being with me today. Talk about springs. Can you? I know you you've given this out <clears throat> a couple of times already, but can you uh, give us the uh, website again and the site for the database so that uh, our listeners can can find those? Sure, Todd. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you today. Our website is Springs Stewardship Institute, all one word, dot org, springstewardshipinstitute.org. And the uh, portal for archiving and anal- analysis of Springs data is called springsdata.org. We call it Springs Online, the Springs Online database, springsdata.org. And if anyone has interest in uh, in signing up for an account, has Springs information they'd like to archive there, they're, they're most welcome to do so. Uh, we have operators uh, standing by during the Arizona working hours <laughs> and ready to help anybody who has any problem with uh, or wants to do an analysis that, uh, uh, that they are interested in. Um, again, the, they are, the, the information is password protected, so you can't see all the data. Uh, unless you are uh, have clearance for some of these landscapes, some organizations like the tribes want to keep their data protected. Some uh, endangered species issues are sensitive enough that uh, those those uh, that information is protected. Nonetheless, uh, springs springsdata.org uh, is a portal for being able to archive and, and to analyze data on springs. And I think it's I got to um, springs are remarkably complex environments. They are multidimensional in the kinds of information that they um, that, that they contain, and we haven't even thought of the of the uh, the kinds of questions that will eventually may be asked about springs relationships between water chemistry and the distribution of plants across elevation and aspect. For example, these become questions we can address scientifically. We we haven't had a, a, a mechanism to be able to even tackle those questions yet. And as we populate this uh, this database, now we've got uh, uh, about 5,000 springs surveys in it from all around the country and uh, around North America. Uh, this These kinds of questions become uh, addressable. So, if, if people are interested in uh, adding data to the to this system, they're most welcome to, and we can help you with that. Springsdata.org and springstewardshipinstitute.org. Great. Thanks, Larry. I really enjoyed uh, this conversation, learning about Springs. And, uh, you know, I hope that uh, Springs are going to get a lot more attention going forward. I know that, uh, you know, there are efforts here in Texas that are refocusing on Springs. And and um, I'm sure that uh, the Springs Stewardship Institute is going to be right in the middle of the efforts uh, nationwide, maybe worldwide, to uh, conserve springs. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Todd. It's really a pleasure to talk with you. So this has been Talkless Water. My guest today was Larry Stevens, the director of the Spring Stewardship Institute. My name is Todd Butler, the host of Talkless Water. Let's talk water again soon.